Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Jordan Rosenblum to talk about his book, Rabbinic Drinking, What Beverages Teach Us About Rabbinic Literature. We're going to look at how drinks and drinking provide an avenue for understanding the Talmud and its context, and illuminates big questions about the nature of rabbinic literature, the world of late antiquity, and how issues of food and drink in Judaism reverberate through the centuries. Jordan Rosenblum is the Belzer Professor of Classical Judaism and the Max and Frieda Weinstein Bascom Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's also the chair of the Department of Art History there. Rabbinic Drinking is such a great book because it uses drinks and drinking as an avenue to open up the Talmud and make an often dense corpus accessible, both in terms of its historical and textual meaning. I hope that you'll check the book out. And if you purchase the book from the University of California Press, you can use the code 17M, as in Moses, 662, to take 30% off the list price. Take a second to grab something to drink, even a cup of coffee. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Thank you. I think this is such a fantastic book. It's a really great introduction to the Talmud in and of itself, but it also is such a fascinating frame for thinking about all sorts of issues. It's constantly there. It's behind so many stories. There's so many narratives that I had learned, texts that I had learned, that I didn't even remember that drinks were there, or versions of stories that drinks were there that teased out new and interesting variables. When I walk into the classroom, there's this gap. The thing about drinking is, for example, you can take a topic like purity. I admit, rabbinic purity discussions can be really boring. But what happens when you have a text, which I talk about, of what happens when your drunk friend pushes you into a river, and what are the rabbinic purity implications of that water for you? If you're a student in the class, that's much more interesting than beginning with, let's talk about Leviticus and purity regulations. If you begin with, okay, so what's the deal if your drunk friend pushes you in a river? I think that what you've illustrated here really well is that, that this is a great avenue for thinking about various issues that come up in the Talmud and making them more interesting for students, for readers, and so on and so forth. But when we think about, you know, take this example of, you know, what happens when your drunk friend pushes you into a river, is there something about drinking that offers a unique perspective into thinking about the culture of the rabbis in their own time, as well as how these texts have been received and understood since then? So there are several things. One is everyone drinks. In fact, you need to drink more than you need to eat, right? So it's a basic essential fact of life. Everyone's life will have a beverage regularly involved in it. Then you have the fact that beverages have a variety of uses. There's the everyday drink, there's the ritual purposes of it. And also it's the type of beverages. So the most common beverage would be wine in Palestinian context, beer in a Babylonian context, but alcoholic beverages. Now, watered down, and youth to adults would all drink that, which then adds also concerns that I talk about, about intoxication, 
in, when we're talking about wine, it adds concerns that relate to idolatry and other matters. And all of these come together so that when you're going to take a drink, you have to ask questions that begin with, what am I drinking? So what blessing am I going to say? What time of day? How much can, of it can I drink? What have I had before or after? Who prepared this? Who handled this? And all of that distinctions make a simple act have to index a variety of decisions you've made, a variety of legal issues, and make a narrative out of your entire day. So it's not just the contents of the cup, it's everything that goes into it that endows it with a lot more meaning than just taking a sip of water. I think that what you're pointing out here is that there's an entire aspect of thinking about drink as an avenue to look at a whole range of issues that go beyond specifically, for instance, issues of kashrut, and also to pull in all sorts of other things that we don't usually associate with food. Yeah. And again, it's my audience too, right? Once you start talking about drinks and it just so happens that beer and wine are most important beverages really to talk about. And there's a variety of other ones as well, but you can't not talk about beer and wine in this. And the variety of examples I give are from beer and wine. And that is interesting to a variety of demographics, but certainly to your 18 to 22 year olds, ignoring the fact that 18 to 20 and you know 364 days old shouldn't be engaging in drinking that. But it's certainly of interest to them. It's also then much more fun to talk about these issues. So they're more engaged and I'm more engaged. Beyond the question of kind of hooking people on the topic, which certainly it does, right? It's a great title. It's a great way of introducing the topic. Is there something about drinking that teaches us kind of really big lessons that goes beyond the specific questions about food and about drink? Because it's so common, it becomes a way of meaning something so much. And let's look at the difference between Coke and Pepsi. Coke having a strong regionality in America, for example. Tea versus coffee. Wine versus whiskey versus beer. We could find examples cross-culturally and across space and time. A concrete example, so I talked about the difference between wine and beer. You can then think about the translation of the rabbinic community that's under Roman rule. And then when you look into Babylonian traditions, one way to look at this is you have a wine drinking culture and a religion based around that. There's a specific blessing for wine. There's not a specific blessing for beer. The ritual blessings over wine before the Sabbath and then for the ritual that ends the Sabbath are wine-based. Then a Babylonian community that drinks beer inherits those. And then they ask, wait, but we drink beer. Can beer function liturgically and ritually? And that's not just asking about wine versus beer. That's also asking about religious traditions created in one environment that are now coming into another and how one translates them or not. Yeah. It speaks to a really broad question about the history of Judaism or about the history of religion in general, which is to say that as religions that begin in one location expand or move somewhere else, how do they interact with their new environment? And I think that this beer versus wine contrast is interesting because it highlights both the different agricultural aspects, say, of Mesopotamia, Babylonia, modern-day Iraq, and ancient Palestine, present-day Israel, because in each place people are growing different things. And this, of course, would change over time as well as Jews would go to different parts of the world where people are eating and drinking different things. It's always kind of a question of how do you fit this new experience into the existing paradigm of the religion that you're inheriting? 
Right. It's a fundamental question in the study of religion, but it's also a question of the interaction of Jews with modernity, and modernity not meaning modern day, this moment, meaning modernity, whatever is modern to them at that time. The example I often give to students is, right, it might say in Exodus that you can't kindle a fire on the Sabbath, but can you fire up your Amazon Kindle on the Sabbath? Like That's a question that you then have to engage in a whole set of principles and discussions to come to a decision for. And that process engages with textual traditions and practices dating hundreds, thousands of years before in crossing space and time, so geographical locations and interactions, and all of those become part of that conversation. Yeah. One of the things that I found really striking in the book is that you open up the book, The Introduction, with a couple of different metaphors about talking about rabbinic literature. You talk about people drinking in the rabbinic texts. You also talk about for yourself, you gave kind of a little bit of a biography about your own involvement with rabbinic texts. And you talk about how it took time to get your sea legs, right? So these are two very interesting and almost mixed metaphors, but they're both about liquid. And of course, this the second metaphor about the sea legs has its own history in as much as we often talk about the metaphor of the sea of the Talmud in and of itself. This is to say that the association of the Talmud with liquid in some fashion is not your own invention. It's something that people have been talking about and using for quite a long time. I don't know if you want to comment, especially thinking about a book about beverages, right, about liquids. What is the importance of liquid and bodies of water, both large ranging from the sea down to like the individual drink? What is the importance of these things when we talk about rabbinic literature? And why do you think that it's an interesting metaphor to talk about liquid, whether about the Talmud as a whole or about beverages in particular? You're right. The metaphors are there. It's commonly known as the, the Sea of Talmud. And there's, as I mentioned from Mishnah Avot, there's that drinking words with thirst. And elsewhere, I talk about the metaphor of water as Torah water, as divine sustenance that also is giving, imparting knowledge and embodying one through that liquid. As heavy-handed and, the, and mixed as the metaphors are, you can thank my copy editor for cutting out a lot more that I had in there. I tend to overdo things, just like the Talmud does, just add, add tradition is just another tradition. I think that it's there for a few reasons. One is, again, I keep coming back to the fact that because drinks are everywhere, they're easy metaphors to see. As I'm talking now, I'm looking around the room, and if something hits my eye, right, it, it cues something for me to talk about sometimes. And so I think you're just talking about concepts and waters right there, and you need it. It's a, especially we shouldn't think of the modern world where you can just run to your tap and open it and clear, perfectly fine, uh, hygienic water comes out, right? Getting the daily water was often a task. That's part of it too. It's a constant part of one's life. So the metaphors are there and it punctuates the daily life. It's also a powerful metaphor. I mean, water can be destructive. It can be life-giving. It can be delicious. It can be intoxicating, literally and metaphorically. And so beverages play these roles. They're constantly there. And you could argue that they're universal, right? Because all humans need to drink. And it becomes a way to talk about things. And it's an experience that others have. But it's also a differentiated experience, too. They acknowledge that, too. The type of wine, for example, that one has access to depends on one's ability to afford wine the type of beer. You know, and so they even acknowledge that there's a hierarchy of beverages in terms of bank account. That also becomes a way to talk about a variety of factors. And then let's also look at the intoxication part. That becomes a way to talk about 
literal intoxication, figurative intoxication, and your actions of your willingness to engage in that can be seen as pointing towards your larger ethical conceptions. I think that part of what's great about this book is that it is intended to help people orient themselves with regards to the Talmud through a set of issues which are relevant to them. You know, as you've been saying, everybody drinks, everybody eats. It's like one thing to talk about what should the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, you know, wear on Yom Kippur. You know, that's a highly theoretical set of issues, whereas things about food, about drink are much more practical. This is a set of issues which are relevant to people, drinks of various kinds. And then as you've mentioned, for college students, it's particularly eye-catching. I guess one of the things to think about here is that as you're writing a book which is meant to introduce rabbinic literature, broadly speaking, through the lens of uh, drinks and drinking, what do you think are the biggest challenges in terms of people approaching rabbinic literature? How do you think that this direction that you're offering is a helpful one, both for students who are getting started and thinking about the Talmud, as well as for people who are more steeped in rabbinic literature? Well, I think the biggest challenge, honestly, is the barrier of introduction. It assumes so much knowledge, and trying to read it in translation is so hard because it's so difficult. I remember I first really interacted with it when I didn't know too much Hebrew or Aramaic, and trying to make sense of it just confused me so much and fascinated me. And that disorientation led me to keep going back and back, and as I learned more Hebrew, more Aramaic. And I also remember a point in my grad program where I realized it was finally making sense to me, which was both exciting and disconcerting, right? Because that meant also that you kind of very much switched the way you think through things. And so I think the barrier is trying to figure out what it's talking about. It assumes so much knowledge. To explain three words of text, you need to have three paragraphs of background. And it presumes, for example, that you've memorized the Torah. One of my favorite things that I talk about sometimes is uh, in the book is that, for example, the rabbis will sometimes quote a portion of a text, but not the portion that actually answers the question they're saying, because they just they'll quote the beginning of the passage and figure that you'll fill in the rest, so you'll know what it is. So actually, the thing that's quoted is not the part that answers the question. You're supposed to know, oh, that is this verse from Leviticus. I know that the second half of the verse of Leviticus is actually relevant to what they're saying, but because I saw the first five words, it cued my mind to finish the sentence, and now I get it. That's a huge barrier. But if you start with, as you said, the drinking, and you say, look, I'm going to get to getting drunk on Purim. I'm going to get to being drunk on Passover. We're going to get to that. But to get you there, we need to go back a step. It's now, I'm hopefully holding your interest for a second to get you, you're willing. If I'm going to say, I'm going to get you to understand what you need to understand about the rules of your drunk friend pushing you into a river. But to do that, I need to quickly explain to you a couple of things about esoteric rules of ritual purity relating to liquids. And that becomes a way to lower the barrier. Instead of saying, it's like, I want to teach you guitar, so I'm going to start to teach you the most difficult solo. You don't know where to begin. But if I say, hey, I'm going to show you playing very simple things, how you can do things, and I can show it to you in an hour, and this is a song you love, the barrier is very different. You're not so intimidated from the beginning. Well, right. So the Talmud is intimidating. These huge books, a huge set of assumptions about pre-existing background knowledge, and we want to make it accessible. You're saying that 
that looking at it through the lens of drinks and drinking, uh, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, opens up that in terms of its accessibility. Yeah, and it becomes a way to talk about it. You know, uh, the the topic by saying, "Oh, I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about rabbinic drinking. I'm going to talk about beer and wine." If I said, "Hey, I'm going to talk to you about ritual impurity rules from rabbinic literature," there'd be a very small subset of people who would want to talk to me. Right? I'm very good at ending conversations in social situations when the world allowed for conversations in social situations. Right? I could do that, or I can say, "Hey, do you want to hear something cool about beer in the Talmud?" I'm not going to presume that everyone's interested, but I think a larger portion of the population is willing to hear me out. Instead of losing five out of the six people from the conversation, I'm going to lose maybe one. I mean, I think actually it's the opposite. I think that by framing the conversation in terms of drinking, you actually get more people who are interested. Yeah. Well, I have to say it was the most fun book to write because I tried to write very differently. As a scholar, you have often two registers. You have the register that you write in, and then the the register used when you're talking through your PowerPoint slides in the class, right? And so you have your teaching persona and you have your scholarly persona. And it took me about 50 pages in that I need to go back and totally rewrite because I realized that I really needed to start writing my teaching persona. And it was kind of fun because it's a side of you that your colleagues don't see. It's a side of you that you don't write in this way. You're used to thinking this is my teaching thought and now this is my scholarly thought. And it was really cool to try and merge them. I think that this brings us back to this question of like how it is that drinking makes the text accessible. Because I think like on the one hand, again, drinking is something that everybody does. You know, I'm not here thinking exclusively about alcoholic drinks because not everybody drinks alcoholic drinks. But in general, like it's an important element of sustenance, you know, hydrate yourself, etc. So on the one hand, this is something that everybody does. And I think it highlights that the rabbis were doing this too in ways that most people who are looking at intimidating passages. Well, part of the reason why the Talmud could be intimidating is because the rabbinic figures themselves are intimidating or can be intimidating. And so this highlights that they are also people. And a cool example of that too is, so my favorite rabbinic figure that comes out, and this is a guy named Rav Papa, who is a beer baron. He makes a fortune as a microbrewer. And it's, it's an important fact actually to know because on a couple occasions, he clearly interprets rabbinic law as a way that elevates beer. And you can't help but think, so someone who makes his money selling beer is willing to elevate beer and change rabbinic law to allow for beer. Now, he also comes from a beer drinking culture, but to not know that fact, and many of the texts that talk about that don't even state that. You have to know that from knowing his biography. But that also is kind of a fun text to talk about because you know that backstory. And now what's going on there? How do these multiple commitments come out in this? And how do the personalities come out? I think that for fairly obvious reasons, you've focused a lot on the alcoholic drinks, beer and wine. And I think also going back to something that I think that you mentioned once or twice, that especially for the college audience, this is what grabs their attention. But this is not really just about alcohol. I think that you are looking at a range of kinds of drinks and drinking practices. I think you even have like a comment at some point about how specifically the rabbis are not really in favor of getting super drunk. You know, that's not what they want. So the title and the topic attracts us in terms of thinking about, okay, we're thinking about drunk rabbis, right? But the thing is that the book is not just about alcohol. Perhaps thinking about like a taxonomy of rabbinic drinking, you know, what are the different kinds of drinks that rabbis are 
are interested in. Obviously, beer and wine are two of them, but there are other ones too. There are other beverages. Some of them are sort of theoretical and mythical. So I talk, for example, in the gender and sexuality chapter of a beverage that comes from the Sota ritual, the suspected adulteress ritual that is detailed in the Hebrew Bible, and they talk a bit about that. You also get something I end up talking a decent amount about, which is breast milk, which is not something that people necessarily think of as a beverage, but prior to the past 100, 150 years where we have reliable formula, basically there are three options, right? A child is breastfed by its biological mother, a child is breastfed by a wet nurse, or a child dies. So it's super important for, for life. And it's a fascinating beverage from their perspective because it's vital for life for a very brief period of time. It's produced by a non-normative rabbinic figure that is a woman, because for the rabbis, normative figures are adult rabbinic men. And so it's produced by a non-normative figure, women, for a non-normative figure, a child. But, and for that short period of time, it's vital. So that becomes a fascinating liquid for them to discuss. The ones I end up talking the most about are wine, beer, and breast milk. Well, right. So I think that the breast milk item is an interesting and a fascinating one. Um, like you said, that for the rabbis who were themselves men, I think one might even say that breast milk was almost as mythical to them as the other kind of like fantastic things that like the Sotai ritual and stuff like that, because it was so far outside of their experience. And it speaks to a very complex and almost problematic gender uh, dynamic in the Talmud more generally, where you have these male rabbis talking about, about women's bodies, like in a number of contexts. Right. And how it comes up tells you so much about the rabbis. So if you look at Mishnah Machshirin, which is um, a tractate that focuses on issues related to liquids, particularly, um, and purity regulations related to liquids, just the very order of how things come up. The rabbis first mention male breast milk before they mention female producing breast milk. So it's theoretically possible known as galactoria, when men, the mammary glands produce milk. It's theoretically possible, and it's documented as a rare but potentially possible thing to occur. The very fact that they think to talk about male breast milk first should cue a whole variety of gendered implications. And then they talk about female breast milk. And there's also a really important fact, too. The rabbis, like Many ancients, you have this in Greek and Roman medical thought, you have this in early Christian medical thought, you have this in Western medicine till around the 17th century, believed that breast milk was transformed menstrual blood. And biblical law makes blood the most tabooed bodily liquid and menstrual blood the most tabooed of it. And they then have to go through a whole series of discussions about that. They also believe that a biological father is obligated to feed his child. And a wife is obligated to feed her husband's child, but a, the biological mother has no rabbinic obligation to breastfeed her own child. So then they ask, well, what if they get divorced? Where now the biological father has an obligation to feed his own child, but the ex-wife, notice I'm using that term, not biological mother, has no obligation to feed her own biological child rabbinically. And so they then have to grapple with that. And in talking about that, all of these gendered issues related to marriage, issues also related to contract law. And so to talk about these issues, breast milk becomes an avenue to talk about that. I think that this speaks to like why rabbinic drinking teaches us like a lot of big things. In as much as this particular issue 
but also some of the other ones as well, tells us about the nature of the gender roles which were enshrined in the Talmud. It teaches us also about how those things have traveled over time and space. So, for instance, like you talked before about beer and wine and about how do you translate a religion which was originated in a place where wine was the chosen drink and you're now in a place where beer is the, is, is the preferred beverage. So the question is, similarly, how does religion change over time in a new environment? And this can relate both to the food and drink culture, but also to other cultural and gender things that have changed over time. And so part of the thing I think that's interesting here is, again, not just how these issues illuminate the text and illuminate the historical context, but it also raises questions about how this text, whether those particular passages or just in general, has been received and understood differently over time. Even though I'm focused only on the Talmud, I do try and occasionally gesture at the afterlives of some of these traditions or medieval or modern analogs that I think are informative. Because as much as I try and ignore medieval and modernity, they occurred and people are interested in them. And much to my chagrin, my students are often more interested in modernity than I would like them to be because I chose not to be a modernist. But because they are, I want to make sure that I'm helping them see the connection to what I'm talking about from the year 400 and how that comes up again in the year 1900. One of the things that's interesting about the book is that it ends with a reference to a seum, which is uh, this kind of celebration of you know, finishing the study of a tractate of the Talmud, and you actually invite the reader to partake in one themselves. When you're thinking about the cultural practice, the religious practice of a seum, what do you think that that tells us about the importance of drinking and food kind of more broadly in terms of how rabbinic texts and cultures have been received over the centuries? So there's a few things. One is, as the as a rabbinic text says, you know, without wine, there is no joy. There is the idea, right, of drinking a celebration. But it's also that, again, there are various rituals of life that drinking becomes part of. We're in this pandemic times, and there are articles of people talking about missing the water cooler as a metaphor and as an actual physical object that people gather on, missing the coffee break. And if you study the history of coffee, you know you have to ask all these questions about the, what the coffee house does. Or the invention of the coffee break in America is also a fascinating history. So these moments are super important for consideration, a variety of factors. And so that is why. And also, you know, I was completing a book, and I couldn't help but think of the completion ritual. It just seemed too perfect. We do have this practice of celebrating the study of Talmud with drink. I'm also with food. And so I guess part of the question is here that, that you are thinking a lot about how drinks and drinking are approached within the rabbinic text. But also there's this, this great history of the connection between food and drink and the actual study of Talmud. Yeah, it's around just more than that. So for example, the, the cover, which they came up with, which I think was awesome. If you look, it has four wine glass stains. And this came from a discussion with them too about the tradition of drinking a Passover and four cups of wine. So it's not just the study of, of texts of just Talmud separated, but it, the Haggadah has a lot of rabbinic texts in it. It has a large portion, for example, of chapter 10 of the Mishnah Pesachim, which is on Passover, not surprisingly. If you look at Haggadot, if you look at liturgical texts of the telling of the Passover ritual, material objects, they have wine stains on them. They have food stains on them. 
even that's an invitation of not just the, those texts as separate text study, but even in ritualized practice, that materiality of it, that interaction with it. And if you find a, a Haggadah that's brand new and crisp, it doesn't feel the same way as one that you see. If you open it and you see crumbs in it or wine stains in it, it has a feeling of interaction that is tangible. The other thing I would say is when people first interact with these things, particularly the Talmud, one of the things I'm often trying to get students to see is the playfulness of it, because they'll view it as super pietistic, and they won't realize the playfulness of it. I'm reminded when I was in my master's program, for some reason, several professors who had a very different way of teaching intro to Judaism than I do, would want someone to show students what it looked like for someone to put on tefillin. And so I somehow became the person who would come in to put on tefillin to show. I remember one time I came in to, to demonstrate to students, and you know, you put the tefillin bag down, you start putting it on, you're, you're talking about it. For them, it was a, an object they hadn't interacted with much or at all, and they viewed that as, it was almost flippant in their mind. And it took me a moment to reorient to say like, okay, so if this is something that you're engaging with every day, and you're used to being tired, you haven't had your morning coffee yet, you stumble in, you mumble hello to someone, you're throwing it on, you go through the rhythm. There, Sometimes it's more intentional, sometimes it's less, but it's a very different interaction with. I think back to that often when I'm teaching because it's important for me to remember what has become normal to me. So the fact that the rabbis will throw barbs at each other, will insult each other, will, let's use a, another one that involves beverages. You know, um, if someone's dad was great and they're a jerk or they're not so smart, you know, you say vinegar, son of wine, because your dad was wine and you're just vinegar. I'm often trying to have them approach the text to see the, yes, this very high level and respectful way, but also they're also a bunch of humans who interacted with each other, who had people they really liked, people they didn't like, arguments that they had that sometimes got really personal. Helping them see the humanity of that, helping them be able to interact with it in a way that is not putting it on a pedestal, but not disrespecting it either, like not kicking it off a pedestal, but seeing that there's so much to it. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that's interesting here, we've talked about a handful of different drinks, but the one that isn't in your book is coffee. And the reason, of course, is that the rabbis didn't have access to coffee. There have been like a whole bunch of works that deal with coffee, particularly in early modern. Jewish culture, like I'm thinking of uh, Elliot Horowitz's article on coffee and coffee houses. Robert Libelitz's book, Jews Welcome Coffee. Exactly. We even had Shachar Pinsker on the podcast you know, talking about his book, A Rich Brew. I guess this raises like a whole bunch of questions about coffee in particular, which I'm always game to talk about coffee. I'll also put that on the table. But more specifically, I'm thinking about how new drinks and new foods come into this history of rabbinic drinking. So the course I'm about to teach. And by the time this podcast comes out, I will have been teaching or will have taught, is a course called Jewish Law, Business, and Ethics, which is really just introduction to Judaism under another name, because I've discovered that if you put the word introduction in the title, many of my students think that they're too advanced to be introduced to anything, and they like thematic and comparative classes. And if I threw in big buzzwords like business, law, and ethics, I can get pre-business, pre-law students. And so it's good for or virtual bunch and seats right now. So it's an introduction to the development of Jewish law from ancient to modern times by focusing on business and ethics. And we read two chapters of Jews Welcome Coffee there because it's a great example of what happens when a 
innovative product comes about, what is the halachic process? So I show them that first you have to ask questions of, what is this? So what you then do is you turn back and look at parallels. What ancient parallel can you find? What beverage is this like? And this comes up in a variety of ways. For example, is coffee a bean, right? Because if it's a bean, you have issues associated with kitniot, which are little things, and Ashkenazic Jews, Jews of Germanic descent, will not eat that on Passover. Well, good for that. It turns out it's a berry. So you have to ask all of these questions. How is it prepared? Can it be prepared on Sabbath or not? And then you have to find comparable beverages or comparable processes to do that. So it's a great test case and innovation of this is something new. How do you compare it? It goes back to that Amazon Kindle example I gave. The study of law is about what category something fits in. And if it's new, you have to figure out what is its best comparable. Then you have to ask questions about business. Um, this gets in also with coffee houses of interactions with Jews and, and non-Jews, the kosher status of the enterprise, preparing it on Sabbath, for Sabbath, who can prepare it? What happens if I leave it on on top of a stove and a non-Jew comes in on Sabbath and kindles the stove? And it just so happens to heat the coffee. What's the difference between instant coffee and regular coffee? The, all these issues come up. And so I would talk about gender too. There's a great example from uh, that book too that I love teaching where uh, marriage law comes in because it basically comes to pass that someone offers to betroth his daughter to someone on Sabbath and they have some food and coffee and they drink. And then someone else comes along immediately after and basically offers a better deal. So the father wants to change the agreement. And what the legal ruling is, because of the coffee and the food, that it was an expense. And one doesn't engage in expense unless there's a real reason to do it. So that coffee was actually the signal that the first engagement was a valid one. And therefore, the second one is problematic. So it's a great way, again, that a beverage comes to talk about a variety of other legal concepts. What you've highlighted here um, has to do with the legalistic aspects of it. I think it also highlights, again, the way in which the rabbinic text is a product of its own time, that there are things that are not there, and that the question of drinks and drinking in the Talmud actually preserves some historical context about the culture of the rabbis within their own time. One thing that I want to think about, sort of expanding our lens a little bit more as well, is that I think that it's important to point out that food and drink, broadly defined, has really been an important part of Jewish history and Jewish culture, basically from ancient times up until the present. I mean, I could go all the way back to the Jewish Bible, where literally, according to the text, Moses and the elders ascend Mount Sinai and eat and drink with God. You know, but we could point to so many other things as well, whether we're talking about early modern and modern times. Like I'm thinking about, um, in terms of Eastern European Jewish history, the fact that Jews were involved in distillery businesses, distillery practices, and so on and so forth. Thinking about the history of rabbinic drinking, you know, Jews and drinking in rabbinic times, do you maybe want to comment broadly about thinking about how drinks and drinking matter in terms of understanding Jewish history, Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Jewish literature, and so on? It becomes a way to talk about that scope of change over time. Well, let me first shift gears now because you mentioned food. So let me, I'll give an example from food for an article I just wrote on uh, garlic. Garlic is mentioned once in the Hebrew Bible. It's Israelites are complaining in the desert. Look at all the food we used to have in Egypt, and one of them is garlic. And then you can follow this through. Talmud talks about garlic as an aphrodisiac, and so they would say on Sabbath, they 
referred to as an afternoon delight, much the same way that the popular song Afternoon Delight has the same exact resonance. And then you go through Fortuyodekas, the, the Jewish stench in Middle Ages, the um, these anti-Semitic depictions of Jews holding a, a bag of money in one hand and cloves of garlic in another, through vampire lore and anti-Semitic tropes of that, through to the kinks have this B-side song from, I think, the 60s. I think it's called When You Turn Off the Living Room Light. That's, uh, I think it opens with something like, who cares if she's Jewish and, and her breath reeks of garlic and her nose is a shiny red light. To me, you're beautiful when I turn off the living room light. And you can talk about the scope of history for that. And same thing with beer, with wine. In fact, I open up this book with a quick introduction to rabbinic literature. And I look at biblical texts by looking at wine. So look at, I mean, Noah becomes the first person to grow grapes, make wine, get drunk with it, and then get naked while drunk. He has a lot of firsts very quickly. And wine and beverages punctuate biblical texts, and then they get picked up in a variety of others. And you're right, you can talk about this. So where I talked about wine in rabbinic times was a problem because they're concerned that idolaters would take any wine and libate it to a god. They'd pour some out. And so you have to be very careful with wine that was not under rabbinic control. Beer didn't have the same issue. Their concern was if the social context for it. So as long as it was not consumed in a non-Jewish establishment, that was their concern. Fast forward to about a year or two ago, I think two years ago now, there was a big controversy in New York about beer not being kosher. And why was that? Because it was right around Passover time. And the main distributor of beer in the New York area was a Jew who was Jewish but not observant. Right before Passover, there's a rabbinic loophole to something called the Shtar Mechira, which is a sales contract where you can sell your leaven so that you, as a Jew, do not own it for Passover, and then you get back. So for the purpose of Passover, that time you didn't technically own it. But some rabbinic interpretations from a modern uh, perspective is that if you're not an observant Jew, you can't execute such a contract. And if you're not a Jew, you don't have to. But the leading distributor was Jewish, but not observant. So many observant Jews decided that for not just Passover, but for a couple months after Passover, they had the presumption that it was owned by him for that time. So they wouldn't drink most beer, except I think it was Anheuser-Busch that had its own distributed for that period of time because of that concern. And I found that fascinating because in ancient texts, the concern was about wine being produced by a non-Jew. And here, if a non-Jew owned the beer, it was kosher. The problem was Jewish ownership. So I, that might be taking you way far afield. But for me, I see these resonances of, and what you see is some of the same principles come out, but because of new variables, new issues, the principles, because of those variables, to you're plugging them into equation, but that leads to different results. I mean, I think that part of what this highlights is that legal systems, kind of broadly speaking, and we can think about the Talmud and Halakha as a legal system, legal systems tend to deal with things that occur in people's actual lives. This is one of the ways in which the Talmud is actually kind of bizarre, in as much as a decent amount of the Talmud deals with things that are not going to happen, or that are not part of daily life. Like I'm thinking about Tractate Yoma, for instance, talking about the rebuilding of the temple. This is not a practical aspect of people's everyday lives, not during the rabbinic times and not during our own times. And yet there we have it. But in general, 
legal systems tend to deal with actual cases that actually come before courts or, you know, before legal scholars. And so food and drink is a part of everybody's life. We can't escape it. It's going to come up. It kind of goes both ways, too, because I say to my students, and I say this in the book, too, that for the rabbis, when you hear hoofbeats, you think zebras, right, not horses. They think the anomalous first. And one thing is to get your head around that. They're right. They're often interested in the abstract theoretical. But that's also where drinking comes in because it can be both abstract and weird and theoretical, but it can also have very concrete um, things even when you don't realize it. I teach about the goring ox, this very famous example of tort damage. You find a lot in the Hebrew Bible, the rabbis expand on it, and legal codes subsequently really talk about that a lot. And then it's the past two times I've taught the course, there have been news headlines that relate to that. The first time I taught it, there was a dairy farmer who was being charged with manslaughter because his cows kept escaping. And there was one time where they escaped and he didn't do anything. And 15 minutes later, someone drove into it and died. I've been talking about things in terms of abstract, theoretical, but here was you know, a great example. I mean, awful for that person. Let's acknowledge loss of life. But as a teacher, this is a great chance to apply ancient to modern. So the other one was, we have a local brewery, New Glarus, that has a, makes a beer called Spotted Cow. And a bunch of cows that happened to be spotted cows escaped from a local farm and were rounded up in the parking lot of the company that sells Spotted Cow. So a lot of local headlines love to say, you know, Spotted Cows, Spotted Cow. So yes, but they do send a lot of time that theoretical. That's another barrier, by the way, I should mention, to the introduction of rabbinic literature, because they focus on the weird first so they presume the yes or no is not interesting to them. So because of that, you have to extrapolate out because, of course, you know the basic. So let's go to the weird. A music metaphor, it's like, I'm not going to teach you the basics of an instrument. I'm going to start teaching you the weirdest Mixolydian scale. I'm just going to go for, try and find you the weirdest scale I can think of rather than a basic, this is what a G chord is. So to bring us back to the question of drinking. You touched on this a little bit earlier on in our conversation, but what do you think that looking at drinking and, and rabbinic drinking in particular helps to teach us about late antiquity? Broadly speaking, you've mentioned in the once or twice some of the ways in which rabbinic culture was in conversation with, for instance, discussions about gender in the Greco-Roman world or elsewhere. Maybe you could expand on that and thinking about how drinking helps us to think about the world of the rabbis really broadly. It teaches a variety of things. One is the interaction between a Roman context and a Sasanian context. So you have these communities and there are tensions between them, and this is one way it comes out. So for example, you have the concern with wine that it's poured out to a pagan deity, and that's why there's concern of, of a rhetoric of observing it and making sure idolaters shouldn't interact with it. You don't have that same concern with beer, but that's not a concern you have if you're a Roman because you're not thinking about beer. When you're in a sustaining context, you're going to ask a question about beer, and the same issue doesn't pertain to it. So now you're going to ask other questions, and that leads to the concern that it's not the beer itself, even if it's produced by a non-Jew, it's the social situation. So the answer they give is, it's meshum chatanut, it's because of intermarriage. So they give examples of two rabbis who would order beer from a non-Jew, from an idolater, and then leave. And one would, as soon as he got outside the bar, would drink the beer. And one was more strict, so he'd wait till he got home. Now, the one who waited just till he left the establishment, the more lenient one, just happens to be Rav Papa, our favorite beer baron. 
So this is another example of a very pro-beer stance he takes. Now, it's not just that. Anyone who's wandered around modern Rome has sees all, uh, a lot of statues of pagan deities. And a lot of them were around 2,000 years earlier. So ancient rabbis would be wandering around and interacting with those. And let's look at a beverage that's not beer or wine. Let's just look at water. It's coming from some of them were streams of water that you could drink. And in modern-day Rome, too, there's still plenty of free available water that you can take. And there are still some that come out of mouths of statues. I have a picture of one of them in my, in my book. And the rabbis ask questions of, well, what if it's a stream of water that's coming out of a pagan temple? Can you drink from it? What if it's a stream of water coming out of the mouth of a pagan deity? Can you drink from it? And the answer is, and this is always my favorite answer to my students, is it depends, right? You can't answer a question without spelling out some of the variables. It's not a strict yes or no. And they basically come up with ways that your posture has to show that you're not bowing to the idol. So if you turn around, so you're clearly not bowing to the idol. Or if you cup your hands when the water is coming out of the mouth of, and then you put it into your mouth, because then you're not looking like you kissed the idol. Or the Babylonian Talmud adds to that. Also, you're concerned that there might be a leech in there, and you need to get that out. This is one of the reasons that I'm not always as succinct as I'd like to be in answering your questions, is because beverages lead us to so many other things. And I have to talk to you about 15 different things just to tell you about one thing that a beverage raises. I think that the example that you just gave about the relationship of water and drinking in public fountains with the pagan temples and pagan idols is a really interesting one because it kind of allows us to think about how food and drink related to the question of the relationship between Jews and their surrounding in the ancient world. It's everywhere. It's not just when it's in the glass. It's in so many other contexts. And again, it's all of these issues surround it. When people think about it, they think of, oh, is this drink kosher or not? Well, it's so many other things. It's the social context. It's where are you getting it from? Is it coming from the mouth of an idol or not? It's, can you say, you know, l'chaim over it? There's tons of questions that it raises. And it's about the drinks, but it's about what the drinks get you to talk about too. I mean, I think like so many things they are symbolic of and they represent bigger issues. And if we can flip it on its head, kind of for like a final set of issues, you know, we've talked about some of the ways in which drinks teach us about the wider world. These are, of course, issues that the Romans, for instance, were also interested in. But to what extent does the broader culture and the context of late antiquity help us in the same way understand the rabbinic literature? Is there a broader context of, say, for instance, drinking cultures? The one example that I'm thinking of is like in the Passover Seder, right, which is modeled on the Greek symposium. There are probably a whole range of ways in which drinking and drinks allows us to think about how the broad context can illuminate the Jewish history and the Jewish literature. That's a great example because one of the other things I bring up, let's look at wine. Wine is the most problematic beverage because there's really a big concern of what uh, Sasha Stern calls compulsive libationers. Like if you leave a pagan alone with the wine, they can't resist the urge. You can't leave them alone with a barrel of wine long enough for them to quickly bore a hole in it pour a little out and stop it back up because that's the fear. The easy solution would have just been say, to say, you know what? No wine. That's it. No wine. Because it's so problematic. Why deal with it? They don't do that, which shows a willingness to embrace a culture of wine under certain circumstances. They don't choose a complete rejection of, which makes life a lot more difficult, actually. 
it would be so much easier to just say, forget it. Beer was super easy, but they also share the, the Roman perspective of a bias against that. That again, wine has its own blessing. If you take an apple and eat an apple, or you have apple juice, there's not the blessing is not the same as if you take a grape and make grape juice, make wine from it, right? They have structurally elevated wine, which shows a continuity with a broader culture and also allows them to differentiate themselves from that culture, to talk about their interactions with that culture. They also don't say, by the way, never drink wine with a non-Jew. Never drink wine with an idolater. They don't say that either. They just make a situation to control that such a situation. One of the things that I think has come up through our conversation is the connection between drinks and drinking and the wider society. And this goes in, in two ways. First of all, you've talked about how Jews are drinking what other people are drinking in the places where they're living, and then therefore they have to deal with it in terms of questions of Jewish law and the Talmud and so on. And then the other thing is that drinking and drinks become a point of question of the relationship with the other, so to speak. You know, the relationship between Jews and non-Jews, questions of gatekeeping, and so on and so forth. So um, I don't know if you maybe want to say something a bit more about this relationship between drinks and drinking and the relationship between Jews and non-Jews. And this can relate both to sort of like in ancient times, but also more modern, more recent examples, especially because of the question of the kashrut status of wine, whether or not wine is kosher or not. It has its origins in the Talmud because this is where they talk about it, but it's an issue with which Jews, you know, traditional religious Jews have been consequentially concerned with over the centuries up till the present as well. Look at Manischewitz wine. So th let's look at the backstory of that. Concord grapes being the grapes that Jews get associated with growing because they come to the tri-state area and they need to grow their own grapes because they need to make their own wine because of what the Talmud says. So because they then need to control their own wine, there's liturgical reasons they need wine, and there's reasons to be concerned with wine that they don't control. So they make wine from grapes, and they make wine from grapes that they can grow in that region. It happens to be Concord grapes, which happens to be a sweeter wine than ours. At the same time, Christian temperance activists in America are looking for a grape beverage that's not wine. And uh, you have Welch's grape, and they're looking for a grape juice, not a fermented grape juice, but a grape juice. They happen to be located right near a bunch of Jews growing Concord grapes, so they buy grapes from them. So there's this connection. Jews also then start producing this wine from that in America. And what happens is after the first or second generation, they tend to associate, well, this is kosher wine. And Manischewitz and others get into the texturing, the, the certifying of kosher of this. And it then becomes a thing internally and externally as identified as, oh, this is what kosher wine is. It doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be that sweet drink. And there's a whole legacy of talking about this. Marnie Davis writes about this in Jews and Booze, said Roger Horowitz in Kosher USA. And so the modern association with this sweet wine as kosher wine has to do with a series of decisions that go way back to the Mishnah. To, to understand why sweet Manischewitz wine is seen as the archetype of kosher wine in today's America, you have to go back to Mishnah. You have to go back 2,000 years to begin that conversation. You kind of point out in the book that the rabbis were not really into drinking themselves silly. But then you're also talking about people getting drunk and sort of this discussion in the, in the Talmud, particularly about getting drunk on, on Passover and getting drunk on Purim. So why do you think that, that this tension is there? Again, this, I think, is the issue that, that draws a lot of people to this topic, is that people hear, oh, rabbinic drinking, okay, we're going to hear about rabbis getting, like, stupid drunk. What is going on here in terms of 
not just the question of drinking, but the question of drunkenness. So this is part of a broader discussion. This is also connects to broader Greek and Roman discussions of everyone drank wine, but only a boar would actually get drunk on it. You know, everyone would have mixed wine. So four parts water, one part wine, and only someone who was really deeply troubled would have uh, what in Greek is akratos, not mixed wine, which is just straight wine. And the rabbis pick up on that. So for example, this is where Passover is interesting. Their definition of someone who drinks is four cups of mixed wine or one cup of unmixed wine. Passover has four cups of wine, right? And so this is an interesting tension there. They also, as I write about elsewhere, they have a problem with drinking even numbers. And so drinking four cups of wine is also problematic from that perspective. I think there's a few reasons. One, let's not ignore one thing. It can be fun to get a little intoxicated. It's enjoyable. It can sometimes be regrettable. They preferred a sober life because one should be thinking about matters of Torah and such. But they also understood that things are a little more complicated than that. And they had some traditions of things. So Passover was allowed that. And, part, and you could see as part of a celebration of Exodus from Egypt and such. But they also found ways of limiting it and not. And the other thing that comes through is their tensions rabbinic literature, because this is why I'm not a medievalist. I have friends who are medievalists, but I often joke that the reason I'm not a medievalist is because in Talmud and classical rabbinic literature, they'll have Rabbi X says this, Rabbi Y says that. It remains unresolved. And then you get to medieval times and it's a code. What are the three ways you can do this? One, two, three, boom. And the discussion disappears. Now that's not fair to medievalists, I know, but I'm the one being interviewed, so I'm going to not be fair to medievalists. And I'm going to say that I dislike that. I love these open-ended texts. And so what you have that comes out in these traditions are some rabbis who really rail against drinking too much, even at these occasions, and those who don't, and so are okay with it. And the example that I bring about about Perm is very famous is a text that says on Perm, you should drink Adlo Yada until you don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai, the good guy and the bad guy in the story. Part and parcel of that text, right, literally right after those words, is a story of a rabbi who gets drunk with his friends on Purim. In the middle of being drunk with his friends, he slaughters him, slices his throat, wakes up in the morning and thinks, oops, this was a bad idea, prays that his friend is revived, and the next year invites his friend out again, and his friend said, no, maybe not every year God makes a miracle. What I say is these traditions are they're right together, and you need to read them together, but they've been pulled apart. And what you see is multiple traditions. And I'm not saying one is righter or wronger, to use great grammar, but what I'm saying is that those tensions were right there, and they should be read together to see that tension. So there are multiple traditions, some that embrace, some that don't. And to understand rabbinic literature, you have to understand that it often says one thing and the opposite. Right. So I guess this relates to this bigger set of issues, which is what it is that drinking teaches us about rabbinic literature. It seems to me like you're saying that the differing opinions over drunkenness, for instance, indicates sort of the broader idea within rabbinic literature of competing voices that are not necessarily one's right and one's wrong. Yeah. One of the other things I try and get my students comfortable with, you have to be okay with things not being resolved. It's hard because they want the one answer. What's going to be on the final? Tell me. Yes or no. And that's not what it's about. It's about learning a set of principles. And I try and remind them, actually, this is better for you for the final. 
because there are multiple right answers. And I'm not looking for the one particular answer. You can use these texts to argue completely opposite opinions. And someone can get an A and argue the answer is yes. And someone can get an A and argue the answer no. And you can both have equally authoritative data. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thanks. I enjoyed it. And now we'll have to have a see you. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.